Y'all turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. We're uh, finishing up our series uh, on the star that led the Magi to the crib of the Messiah. Yesterday, I, I got to celebrate with my own family. Actually, we went down to where I'm from out in the country, and Friday night, we, we hung out with my immediate family, my brother and his kids and, and my mom and dad, and, and then yesterday with all the extended family. But that Friday, as we were, we were there at mom and dad's house, and, and my brother and his family walked in, and the way we knew they were there is my brother walked in singing. Hark the Herald Angels sing, and he's got as poor singing voice as I do. And so he's just booming it as he walks in, and uh, his daughter looks at his, his wife and says, why did you marry him? And I thought, you know, that's, that's the perfect way to picture Christmas right there, you know, because at Christmas, don't we all think the same thing? Don't we all think, why am I related to these people? You know, isn't that the point? Um, but we had a great time. I hope you have a wonderful time tonight and tomorrow. If you have young children, how many of you have young kids in your house tonight? My prayers are with you. Um, I, I really, I remember being there and yeah, I, I remember how hard that is. By the way, just as a public service, uh, if you need a, a last-minute Christmas gift, our, our staff counselor, Larry Renetsky, uh, his book, Healing Grace for Hurting People, is for sale for $10. That's his cost. You can grab one on your way out. Um, or you can take a picture in front of our big Christmas tree and uh, give it to your friends and say, here's your present. This is us right here. But as we look at, at the Word of God today, finishing up our series, if you were with us, you know we've been talking about the wise men. And you also know that a lot of the things we've heard and seen in Christmas pageants, in Christmas carols, I love the song, We Three Kings, as much as anybody, but it's incredibly biblically incorrect. There weren't three of them, as far as we know. The Bible doesn't actually give us a number. There were probably many more than three. And they weren't kings at all. They were magi. The technical term is magi. And that's a reference to what we would call a sorcerer, enchanter, a fortune teller. People who, according to the law of Israel, were not even allowed to exist in Israel. And yet, they were the ones who came to visit the Messiah, to worship at the feet of Jesus. When the religious elite, five miles away in Jerusalem, didn't even leave their beds, didn't even leave their homes to come and worship God's only Son. And they followed this strange thing in the sky that they described as a star. We don't know exactly what it was. I've been sharing with you a theory in a book that I've, I've read recently that it was a, a comet. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And the, the reason for that is a comet actually does some of the things or all the things that, that Matthew describes in Matthew 2. It, it fits the description. It, it's plausible. Whether you accept that or not is not really important. It just kind of helps us picture what actually happened. We also saw how last week the Magi had come hundreds of miles. They knew this child had been born in Israel. They knew he would rule the world. They knew he was a blessing from God to the world. They didn't know where to find him in Israel. And so Herod, the king of Israel, consulted his religious authorities and they told him, find him in Bethlehem. And so that's where they went. But how would they find the child? How would they find the exact spot? So let's... Pick it up with verse 9 of chapter 2. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
So there's a lot of details here I want to talk about, but there's one main one I want to spend my time on. Let's look at a couple, though, first. First of all, how did a star stop over a house? I've always wondered that. Maybe you've wondered it too. Maybe you've seen movies where you see this spectacular thing in the sky, and there's like a spotlight shining on this one house, and there's angelic music playing, and it's sort of like, you know, it's bathed in heavenly light. I don't think that's the way it happened. It might have. But I think if it happened that way, everybody in Bethlehem and the surrounding area would have come to see. And the Scriptures tell us there was hardly anybody there. So one way we can picture this, if it was indeed a comet, comets, when they turn perpendicular to the earth, they have a tail and they can be pointing down. So there's a picture there you can see of an actual comet and what I'm talking about. So if you can picture, one way this might have happened is as the, as the wise men, the magi, came into Bethlehem, perhaps they saw the star that, which up till now had, been, had looked very different. Now it was pointing downward and maybe directly over a particular house on the horizon. And they said, that must be where it is. And they went to that house, and that's where Jesus was. Notice the gifts they brought. We, they brought three. This is where we get the idea of three uh, wise men, but there were actually three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, appropriate for a king's crown. Frankincense, which is what a priest would need to offer worship within the temple, the sanctuary of God. And myrrh, which is what the family of a martyr would need to prepare his body for burial. Jesus was our priest. He stood between us and God and made us right with Him. Jesus was our sacrifice. He gave His life for us. And Jesus is and will be our King forever. King of a, a world where there's no war, there's no violence, there's no hatred, there's no sin. So these gifts were entirely appropriate. I don't know if the wise men knew what they were doing or if they just bought the be- brought the best they had, but it was perfect. And as some have pointed out, right after this, Jesus' family, who were very poor, found out they had to flee to Egypt because the king wanted to kill the child. So what could a a poor family have used to finance a journey to a distant land? Maybe it was that gold, frankincense, and myrrh that bought them the freedom, the ability to get their child to safety. But here's what I want to focus on today, and that is that word overjoyed in verse 10. When When the Magi saw Him, they were overjoyed. This is an interesting word that Matthew uses because in Greek, it's kind of a redundant word. It's, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So it's, it's like the most significant way, the most profound way of saying they were really, really excited. You picture somebody who's just won the Super Bowl or just won an Olympic medal. Picture somebody who's just asked the woman of his dreams to marry him and she says yes. Picture a guy who's just gotten the job that he's always wanted or the woman who's just hit it big and, and now she's able to afford the things she's always hoped for. That's, all those things are good and all those things are exciting, but none of them compare to what the Magi felt right then. They experienced fantastic joy. Joy that never goes away. And here's the exciting thing about this story. The joy they experience there is the same joy that results anytime someone truly accepts Jesus and truly makes Him Lord of their life. We see it all through the Scriptures. The result of anybody who met Jesus face to face and received Him for who He was, was joy. Absolute joy. Think about the people who were healed in Scripture. They rejoiced in their healing. And Jesus would often say, hey, keep this quiet. And He had His reasons. He had His reasons to avoid publicity. He said, don't tell anyone what happened to you. None of them followed His advice, by the way. They all just, they couldn't help themselves. They went out and told what they knew. They spread the news. I think about Zacchaeus. When we were in Sunday school growing up, we sang that song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. 
Well, Zacchaeus was really a crooked little man. He was, he was a, a, a con artist. He was a, a thief of his people, a, a tax collector who, who gathered taxes from his own neighbors to enrich Rome. And yet when Jesus came into his life, he was totally changed. One of the first things he did was said, I'm going to take half of what I own and give it to the poor. And with what's left, I'm going to pay back everybody I've ever cheated four times what they gave me, what I took from them. Now, why did he do this? Did he, did he think I have to do this to impress Jesus, to earn the favor of God? No. Jesus had already said, I've accepted you. By entering his house and eating with him, Jesus was saying, you are mine. Zacchaeus did it because he was so full of joy. He just had to share that with someone. I think his attitude was, you know, up till now, this money, this wealth has been my source of security and joy and happiness, but now I've got Jesus. I don't need all this. I can share this. I can be generous. I can be extravagantly generous. I think about Peter coming home after a long day on the Sea of Galilee, catching absolutely nothing, and Jesus coming to him. And at the end of the story, Peter is falling on his face before him, rejoicing. I think about Paul, a religious fundamentalist, a terrorist, a narrow-minded bigot. And Jesus comes into his life and he becomes the apostle of grace. Because of him, we know that God accepts us no matter who we are. A man whose very life was bound up in, in winning Gentiles, people he used to despise, into the kingdom of God. And you know when Paul wrote a letter years later to the church, churches in Galatia? In chapter 5, he said, if you want to know what it's like to have the Holy Spirit in your life, here are the characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And he starts listing them. The second one on the list, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should have it. The second one on the list is joy. Jesus produces joy. Now, Some of you are already thinking something. You're, you're afraid to say it, but, but it, you are thinking it. And that is, well then how come some of the meanest, crankiest, gripiest, unhappiest people I know are religious people? Can I get an amen? Come on, we're in church. Is it true? Yes, it is. I have a friend who once said, you can always tell an evangelical Christian because they're always mad, and I think it's because they're afraid somebody somewhere might be having fun. Sad but true. Why is that? Well, you know, maybe a lot of them aren't really saved. That's not for me to know. That's between, me and, that's between them and the Lord. But I think deep down at heart, a lot of us, maybe most of us, don't really understand what joy is. We get it all mixed up in our heads with what the world calls happiness. Happiness is a good thing. Happiness is what some of you are going to experience tomorrow morning when you wake up your parents before dawn. You see that big mound of presents under the tree. Happiness is what you experience when your child is born, when, when, you, when, everything, when something happens that's exactly what you hoped it would be. That's happiness. And that's a good thing, but it doesn't last. That present you're so excited to get tomorrow, guess what? It won't bring you that happiness every day of your life, the rest of your life. But joy never goes away. Joy is regardless of circumstances. You can be weeping at the tomb of a loved one who you know you're going to miss terribly and still have joy. You can find out from the doctor that you've gotten some dread disease and still have joy. Joy is regardless of circumstance. The best description of joy I've heard is from Dallas Willard, an extremely smart Christian. He said, joy is not the mere sensation of pleasure. It is a pervasive, constant, and unending sense of well-being. The best way I can understand the difference between joy and happiness is this. If you have kids, if you've ever tried to raise children, 
And if you're raising them now, here's the best parenting advice I can give you. Don't try to make your kids happy. That is not your goal as a parent. If you try that, you will fail and you will fail miserably. And not only will you fail, you'll also create a monster. We will hate you for what you've done to your child and what that child does to the world. But if on the other hand you say, my job as a parent is to provide my kids with what they need, to make sure they always know they're safe. They always, they're, they're never going to wake up and say, I, I wonder if dad's going to sell me to slave traders today. I wonder if, I wonder if mom's going to feed me or not. No, to have that sense. Someone is in charge of my life who loves me and cares for me and is going to provide everything that I need. Give them a sense of direction. Let them experience the good and the bad in life. Let them experience the consequences of bad choices. Let them, let them experience disappointment, and it's okay. But to know that if I, if I go to your football game and you never get off the bench, I'm still proud of you. To, to let them know, if you fail at school, I'm still going to call you my child. If, if you're 45 and still living at home, I'm going to be upset about it, but I'm still going to love you, Okay. That's a sense of well-being to, that your children know someone has my best interest at heart and is steering my life in a direction for my own good. And that's what God does for us. And that's the joy we should have. And you might say, listen, I'm a Christian, but I don't have that kind of joy. I believe all the stuff in the Bible, but I don't have that joy. I'm discouraged. Life defeats me. Well, here's what I'm going to do for you for the last few minutes of this message. I want to go through something that I learned a few years ago. The psychologist Frank Lake, a Christian man, he was trying to discover what it was that brought Jesus so much joy. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, you think, of all people who lived on earth, this ought to be a man who had no joy in his life. He was, he was poor from the day he was born. Last three years of his life, he was essentially homeless. He was rejected by his own people he was disappointed, he was humiliated, he was physically abused and ultimately rejected and murdered. And yet, this is a man who was constantly joyous. People aren't drawn by the thousands to someone who feels sorry for themselves. Jesus didn't. Jesus projected joy. How could he do it? He was just a man like us. How did he do it? And Frank Lake discovered these four things Jesus had that brought him joy that you and I can have. He called it the cycle of grace. So let me go through this quickly. He said Jesus, first of all, had acceptance. Jesus knew He was loved by His Father. Remember the day that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. As He came up out of the water, He heard this voice from heaven say, This is My Son who I love. Listen to Him. Later on, a few years later, when Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to give His life for us at Calvary, he went up on the mountain of transfiguration. He heard the very same thing. This is my Son who I love. Listen to Him. God made sure Jesus knew. And Jesus made sure He knew He was accepted by His Father. So it didn't matter if all the world rejected Him. The most important person in the world had accepted Him and that was enough. Do you have that knowledge? That, that sense that I belong to God and He accepts me as I am. He won't leave me that way. He's going to change me. He's going to grow me. But even in all my flaws and all my sins and all my ugliness and ridiculousness, He accepts me as I am and loves me. Do you have that? He also had sustenance. Jesus took care of His own soul. He knew you can't just go through life pedal to the metal 100% of the time. And Jesus was a busy man. He was constantly hounded by people who were around Him asking for Him to teach them, for Him to heal them. 
He was constantly in demand, and yet he would often get away by himself. He would sneak away from the crowds. Sometimes his own disciples would hunt him down and say, Where, what are you doing out here by yourself? And Jesus would say, I have to be with my Father. If Jesus needed that, how much more do people like us need it? How can we think we can just wake up in the morning and drink a cup of coffee and we're ready to go? You need sustenance. You need to feed your soul. And, and the food comes through the Scripture. The Word of God feeds your heart, feeds your soul, changes your mind. But it also comes through serving others. You, you take the time to meet somebody else's needs without expecting anything in return and it feeds you. You take the time and the generosity to give away the blessings God has given you financially and it feeds your soul. You sing to the Lord, whether it's here in church or in your car or in the shower or wherever you are, you sing a song of praise to God and it's going to feed your soul. Even celebrating the good things God has given you is a, is a way of feeding yourself. And you may say, well, I'm just not a very spiritual person. I try reading the Bible and I just get kind of lost in all the, all the terminology and I, I can't really serve others. And I'm just, I'm just not good at that kind of thing. Can't I just show up in church once in a while? You'll feed me and everything will be good. Would you, feed, would, you, would you go to a restaurant once a week and that's the only time you eat? That's not, that doesn't work. See, here's what I've discovered. And, and, I, and I love this. I got to a point in my life a few years ago where I came to recognize I couldn't just go on having bacon cheeseburgers and Dr. Pepper every day. It, it just didn't work anymore. You know, God bless that 15-year-old metabolism. It was long gone. So I, I discovered I had to eat good food. Well, good food at first isn't quite as appealing, right? But you gain a taste for it. And I've learned to like just about everything that's good for you. Not quite. Kale, I've still got a problem with. But most, I, mean, I, I'll put, I put spinach in my smoothie. It tastes fantastic. I eat salad with grilled chicken on it. It's, it's wonderful. You gain a taste for what really feeds you. And you can do the same thing with the things that feed your soul. It just takes persistence. It just, just takes the recognition that, yeah, it's good to go fishing. It's good to watch a football game. It's good to sit in Netflix for a while, but that doesn't feed you. That's bacon cheeseburgers. And your soul needs what feeds you. Gain a taste for it. Acceptance, sustenance, the cycle of grace also includes significance. Jesus knew that He was here for a reason. He wasn't just living. He wasn't just biding time. He wasn't just earning a paycheck. Jesus had significance. He had a sense of purpose. This, the word significance, the first four letters are S-I-G-N, which spells sign. And I think that's significant in itself because Jesus' life pointed to something bigger. It pointed to God. And we're meant to have a purpose in life that points to something bigger than ourselves. If all you're about is your favorite athletic team and your favorite store and your favorite political party and your goals and your dreams, you're not going to have joy. But if your life points to something bigger than you, if you have significance, a purpose. See, I'm excited about 2018 because the ministry staff, we've identified our ministry goal, our ministry focus in 2018 is going to be equipping you to live out the, the, the absolute specific purpose God has created you for. Right out of the gate, in the first series of the year in January, we're going to talk about how do you find the reason why God made you? What, what is my purpose here in life? But in the meantime, just understand this. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So let your light shine before others so that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You're supposed to live in such a way that you point others to Him. 
And that brings your life significance. And that significance brings you joy. And then finally, Jesus had achievement. In that cycle of grace, He had achievement. His life accomplished something. And I want to make something clear. When we talk about accomplishment, we often think of different things. We think of making money. We think of achieving fame, success. And those things are fine. Nothing wrong with them at all. But Jesus didn't have any of those things. Jesus never wrote a bestseller. He didn't write anything. You know the only time in the Bible Jesus is pictured writing is at the feet of that sinful woman who was about to be stoned to death. And we don't even know what He wrote in the ground. Jesus didn't start a, a, a college. He didn't, he didn't win any elected office. He didn't lead an army. He never made money. He wasn't on the cover of a magazine. He had some popularity for a while, but it went away whenever He would say something difficult. By all the metrics of success that we have today, metrics of achievement, Jesus failed. And yet, He had the most significant achievement of all. He saved people's souls. Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. For the joy set before Him. Why did He have joy going to the cross? Because He knew, this is my life's work. This is what I've come to do. If I do this, if I go through with this, if I don't chicken out, Millions are going to be saved. And that's why, with his last breath, he could say, it is finished. I've done it. Now, all these people can be saved. See, you can invest your life in a lot of things, and you can achieve a lot of things, and you should be happy about the things you achieve, but you'll never achieve anything greater than investing in the life of a fellow human being, blessing somebody who's hurting, mentoring somebody who needs direction, sharing the salvation you've received with people who don't have it. That's a life of significance. That's a life of achievement. That's a life of joy. I don't know if the, if the Magi understood any of this when they were kneeling before this baby and presenting their gifts. I don't know how much they understood of what this child would be. I know that they knew this was a child sent from God. That this child, because he was in the world, everything was going to be different from now on. I know that when they saw him, they were overjoyed because they knew our lives had been changed. And I expect to see them in heaven someday. Here's the thing. They pursued Jesus. And He brought them joy that doesn't fade away. Will you pursue Jesus? Will you chase after Him? Truly, not just believing in Him with your head, but chasing after Him with your heart and your life. And experience joy that the world cannot take away. That's my wish for you. That's my hope for you this Christmas and beyond.